Brief disclaimer, there's stronger-than-usual violence this week, as well as a woman becoming the captive of a lecherous, evil man, with, unfortunately, everything that that implies. We don't get explicit at all, but I just wanted to let you know that it's there. Please follow the link in the show notes, or check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from West Africa about love, sacrifice, and violent spirit monsters raiding your village. The creature this week is a smelly pteranodon, menacing turn of the 20th century America, and why the Old West was a dangerous place for dinosaurs. This is Myths and Legends, episode 294, Spirited Away. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes to us from the Yoruba people, and it's set in modern-day Nigeria. It takes place roughly in the 12th or 13th century, when the main kingdom today was at the height of its power. Just a quick note, though. The names and places are tricky, because, for instance, the main antagonistic kingdom today is named the same as a people group in modern-day Nigeria, but all the sources say there's no direct link. The main protagonist kingdom is also named the same thing as a town in modern-day Nigeria, but it's also unclear if that's the same thing. I tried to stay true to the stories and the legends as I found them, but they're legends and don't always match up with history. All right, all that aside, we'll jump in with a merchant today who hears a scream coming from his house and who fears the worst is finally happening. A scream went up from the edge of the village. The merchant trembled. No, it was happening. It was finally happening to them. Feet beat the dust off the road as people ran not toward the scream, near the market to help the woman, but away. They had come. They had come and there was nothing that anyone could do to stop them. This market would fall too. This village with it. The only thing the people could do was make sure they didn't go too. The merchant's stomach was a stone when he saw the black billowing into the sky, his home. Then he breathed. It wasn't the forest spirits. It was some accident. But still, his home was burning. His wife and children had run out in time. He was still a few hundred meters away when he heard two cries. His wife pointing toward the house and then the reason for her terror. Their baby, their baby was inside. The merchant ran without thinking. He barreled through the door. He didn't even feel the fire as it singed his skin or care that everything he had worked for was coming down around him. He found the baby in the flames, lifted him up, and ran for the door. He charged through the doorway and breathed. He saw the tears in the eyes of his wife and children. Even with nothing, they still had each other. Then... He saw the reason for the fire. The leaves. The leaves behind his family were moving. They were a mass. Five of them. His wife lowered her hand when she saw the look of terror on his face. Everything was okay now, right? A gag forced its way in between her teeth. The forest spirits. The forest spirits had started the fire to smoke his family out. The merchant set the baby down in the grass, a safe distance from the house. 
and picked up an axe they left outside for cutting wood. His family wouldn't be taken. One of the shuffling mounds of grass that wasn't subduing his family rushed toward him, and he swung the axe. It only found leaves. The merchant didn't understand. That blow would kill a normal man. More leaves came shuffling out, filling the gap that the axe had made. The forest spirits really were just that. Spirits. You couldn't kill spirits. They were cursed. His breath left him as a dagger slid into his side. He looked down in disbelief at the blood. A hand made out of leaves palmed his chest and shoved him back into the burning house. The last thing he saw, before he saw nothing at all, were the forest spirits dragging his wife and children away and scooping up his baby from the grass. I don't know how I survived, the merchant said, on his knees before the king, the burns only now beginning to heal. He woke up covered in rubble and debris, digging himself out from the remains of his house. He found desolation. Those who weren't dead were taken. The forest spirits had ransacked his entire village. They were gone. They were all gone. He didn't waste time. He walked to the palace of the king and collapsed on the man's doorstep. King Aramian rose after hearing the merchant's stories. He was the king and he would defend his people. The warriors were to investigate the village and the market where the attack took place, follow the destruction. You can't take that many people and leave without a trace. The forest spirits had to be out there. If they could stab, they could be stabbed. If they could bludgeon, they could be bludgeoned. Justice would be done. But it wasn't. Of the warriors that returned, only one would speak of what he saw. They fought like ghosts. They were ghosts. Ghosts that used the trees to take form. They raided in the daytime. When people, when warriors were up and ready, you couldn't hit them. The king sat back in consternation, trying to consider his next move. While he did, more and more markets fell to the forest people. The forest people that no one knew how to fight. Not even Queen Morami. Now, some sources call her the queen. Some sources call her a consort, and still others just call her a villager. For simplicity's sake, we'll call her the queen. The king was frozen in fear. He didn't know what to do, and he only hoped that the raiders didn't come to his city. The queen knew that something had to be done, and if the king wasn't going to do anything, she must. Only, unlike her king, she knew what next step she had to take. So, she went down to the river. Queen Morami waded into the cool of the river, the night stars up above her. It was peaceful, but she hadn't come here for peace. She breathed deep and called on her, the goddess, the great mother of the Esmeran River. For a long time, there was nothing, only the silence of the forest at night, which wasn't silence at all. But Morami knew she could wait. She knew her only path forward was in this river talking to the one who brought them fish, fresh water, and helped them carry their goods far away. 
Her faith was strong and it was well-founded. As she breathed sitting in the water, a shape took form for her. The woman, the goddess. Mormi was respectful, but she didn't cower. She didn't beg. She was a queen, after all. Esmirin, Queen Mormi bowed. She greeted the great mother of the Esmirin River. She said that the river's child, the queen, had come with a broken heart. The forest spirits wanted to destroy them. They raided relentlessly, and they would destroy them, unless the goddess came to her aid. There was any sacrifice that Morami could offer up to discover the strength of the forest spirits, she would do so in order to protect the people of Ife'efe, her people. The river goddess didn't smile. She barely gave any reaction at all. Did the queen know what she was offering? Morami hesitated only for a moment. She knew you didn't deal lightly with the old gods. The river goddess, she formed the land. She looked after them all. But she could also be hard, capricious, unforgiving. She drowned the careless and the inexperienced. She was their friend because they respected her. She could easily dry up or flood or divert her waters, all of which would destroy them. But... Morami knew what she had to do. She nodded, yes. She would make the sacrifice. Whatever Esmirin asked. Esmirin met the queen's eyes. That day wasn't today. After her people were safe, she would tell the queen what was to be sacrificed. And now, she would tell Morami how the woman could learn the secrets of the raiders of the forest. The pair exchanged a few more words before Esmirin told Morami to go. Her blessings and her spirit would go with the queen. She would see the queen back here when her people were safe. With that, the goddess lowered back into the river, becoming one with it. Morami found herself alone with the stars and the night sounds of the forest. She rose, wrapped herself in a covering, and made for the palace. You're leaving at this time with all the stuff going on, King Oramian asked. Why? The goddess told me to. Morami was packing her pack. So you were talking with the river then. Morami leveled a glance at her husband, the king. The man held up his hands. Sorry, it's just that she knows how that sounds, right? For the queen to be talking to... Water? Morami stopped him. This was the only viable plan they had. If she didn't do it, she wouldn't be a queen. Their son, she gestured to the sleeping baby on the other side of the room, wouldn't have a kingdom. They couldn't sit by as their people were dragged off to who knows where. The king didn't like it. His queen leaving by herself when there was so much uncertainty out there, but... He wouldn't, and frankly, couldn't very well stop her. Morami looked to the horizon. It was almost dawn. She didn't want the city knowing she had left. She needed to go. She bent down and kissed her son on his forehead and embraced her husband. Morami said she would return. And when she did, she needed the king to be ready. She stole off into the cool of the early morning, off west. 
while the sun rose behind her. She wasn't a queen on the road. Morimi was just a traveler. Morimi gave others a wide berth, and they eyed her, clutching any weapons they had. No one in the kingdom of Ife-Ife knew where or when the forest spirits would strike. Very few, like the merchant, had escaped. They were right to be wary. She found the remains of the village where the merchant had lived. It was now a forsaken place. Some of the houses had been lit to smoke out the inhabitants, but she imagined that once enough chaos started, the forest spirits could blow through the doors with impunity if they even needed to go through doors. For all anyone knew, they could pass through walls, their leaves fluttering in and reforming on the other side. Mornemi reached the merchant's home. She traced his footsteps, that of his family, and Mornemi remembered the warriors her husband had sent and followed their trail into the wilderness. She walked for several more hours. It wasn't difficult to follow the trail. Whole families, taken and prodded along, made for easy tracking. Whatever power the spirits had, they couldn't make the people disappear. But what were they doing with the people? She bent down to take a long drink from the river, the cool helping her in the heat of the day. The river goddess had only told her to go this far, to go to the ruined village the merchant told of, to follow the tracks into the forest. She had already passed the place where the Ife-Ife warriors had fallen to the spears of the forest spirits, fallen or fled. She had pressed onward. The paths had forked off this way and that, but she stayed with the main one. From her limited tracking experience, it looked like the forest spirits were taking individual groups. Now, even the main path was starting to fade, and... As Moremi drank, she didn't know what else to do. The goddess had only told her to come so far, and there was a crack of a stick behind her. In one motion, she pulled her knife, but before it found the neck of the man behind her, his knife found hers. No, 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 he said, holding out a hand. Easy now. It wasn't a forest spirit. He was just a man, a warrior of the Ugbu the enemies of her people. She had been tired, and he got the jump on her while she bent down to drink. She searched frantically. Morami knew that she wasn't meant to be killed or captured by the Ugbu. She was supposed to find out how to stop the forest spirits. The knife. Now, the man demanded. His tone made it clear that if she refused, her blood would flow with the river. Morami deposited her knife in the hand of the warrior, he threw it in the water, and then used that hand to get some rope from his pack. Wrists, he said, and she held out her wrists to be bound. He was efficient at binding one-handed. When he was done, he jerked her to her feet and told her to wait by the tree. If she tried anything, she was dead. As he went through her pack, she was thankful she left no indication as to who she actually was. He threw her bag in the river as well, and said she was coming with him. She looked all around, frantically. She had come seeking the forest spirits. Morimi couldn't be captured by the Ugbu. The queen calmed herself. If the goddess of the river was to be believed, then she was right where she needed to be. She breathed deep and followed her captor. Mm-hmm. 
we'll see the next stage of the plan. But that will be right after this. She's beautiful, the Ugbu man said to the other. He looked more at me up and down. Could he, you know, buy her? Morimi grimaced. Her captor was incensed. Sell her to him? Did he have any idea how that sounded? That sounded terrible. Morimi's eyes widened. Wow. Surprisingly decent captor. No, she's going straight to the king. He'll pay more than you ever could. Morimi grimaced again. Okay, yeah. Everyone's terrible then. Morimi kept the faith that she was right where she needed to be, though. When she was sold so her captor could be the king's right-hand man, and she was taken to the king's room. When, yeah, she fell into a role. She hated every moment of it, but the king didn't know that. The Ugbu king had been trying to kill her husband, her true husband, since before they were married. And because no one could quite gain the upper hand, the two groups existed in an uneasy truce knowing that going too far against their enemy opened them up to attacks from others. Now, though, this forest spirit thing threatened to upend all that. Still, Morami was in this kingdom for a reason. She was forced to share a bed with the enemy king because it was the goddess's will. As much as she just wanted to slide a knife between his ribs in the night, she would still need to escape. And if they were able to track her home, providing she didn't fall to the forest spirits, then that would reignite the war. The war that her people would lose. No, she needed to stay. Stay and see why the goddess had put her there. So she didn't try to kill the king immediately. Though hate burned within her, she put on a performance. One of fury and scorn, slowly yielding to familiarity. There were times when his guards found a knife under her pillow. Concealed, but not too well. She was taken and beaten. That was all part of the dance. She returned cowed and submissive. Months passed. To the king's eyes, he had broken her spirit. She loved him, or at least pretended to in order to thrive here. To a lifelong absolute monarch, that was as close as you could probably get. Her rough edges seemingly worn off, the king noticed that she spent more and more time with him by choice of his wives, he took to favoring her, calling her queen. She was never not watched, but she had some authority. He still spent nights with his other wives, but he would always return to her. One night, she heard wailing from the edges of the village. Ostensibly her guard, though Morami knew they were her jailers, they followed her into the street. She saw captives, enslaved women, children, and men. Ife Ife, her people, one looked to Morami with a pained glance. She recognized her queen. Her queen that was now standing in the village of her enemy in beautiful clothes, free. She spat at the queen's feet. A spear butt found the source of the spit, and the woman was dragged onward. That night, Queen Morami ran her fingers along the king's chest as you reclined with her in bed. She said, there were slaves that came in tonight. She recognized them as Ife Ife. She 
had something she needed to tell her king. Morimi said that she used to be Ife-Ife. Her brother was a merchant. His family had been taken one day when the forest spirits attacked the market. The king sat up, serious. He turned to her. He asked if she still considered herself to be Ife-Ife or if she was one of them, an Ugbu. Morimi smiled and gestured all around her. She was a queen, wasn't she? The king breathed. He was so glad to hear that. He rose from bed. The Ugbu king had something to show her. Queen Morami looked at the storehouse. The storehouse lined with costumes, suits made out of raffia leaves. The forest spirits, the Ugbu, were masquerading as the forest spirits. <laughs> they are so superstitious. They barely even fight back, the king laughed. The queen reeled. They, the forest spirits are spirits. You can't hit them, the queen said, feeling the dry leaves. Yeah, it turns out that when you believe you can't hit something, you don't, the king said. The suits gave them a certain level of safety, too. They made the attackers wider and taller. So when they were hit, there was a good chance it went right through, hitting nothing, only reinforcing the fact that they were spirits. The king sometimes went out, and oh my gosh, Morami should see their faces when they hit the suit to see only leaves flutter to the ground. You could almost watch their spirit break, their hope evaporate. It was beautiful. They were systematically weakening the Ife-Ife, selling their people into slavery, destroying their markets, and killing any warriors who came after them. Then, when the time was right, they would descend on the villages, on the king. It wasn't long now. Just a few more raids. The queen smiled. Her king was so smart. By morning, Morami was nowhere to be found in the kingdom of the Ugbu. She ran through the night, without fear of the enemy or the forest spirits. The goddess had done it. She had revealed the secret. The king of the Ife-Ife awoke to Morami having a meeting the Ife-Ife warriors. He didn't know what was going on. His wife was back and also not dead. She had been gone for months. He tried to embrace her, but she stepped back. They needed to talk. She had been taken against her will. The things had happened. The king told her that it didn't matter. Whatever it was, it wasn't her fault. But she had done it. She had figured out what was going on with the forest spirits? Morami said yes. She told the king everything. On her last talk with the king of the Ugbu, she learned the markets he was going to hit next. This was it. This was where they got to take back their lives. She ready messengers to the market and the village. They were to evacuate, to come to the king and queen for safety. Morami said she would go early with the scouts to make sure everyone got out. There were preparations to be made. The king said she couldn't possibly go. 
This was so dangerous, and she had just gotten home. She didn't say, but could have, that after what she had done to get this information, after the risk that she had personally exposed herself to, while the king stayed back and wrung his hands for months, yeah, she was going. The king, though, understood the implication behind the queen's glare and didn't press Mornami anymore. Yep, she was going. The king of the Ugbu was on this raid. He needed something to take his mind off his favorite wife's escape. He was out to make sure her people paid for her selfishness and maybe treat himself to a new wife or two. Slow day at the market, though. Only a few men. He told his warriors to fan out. Hit the village, too. Do the fire thing. The villagers always freaked out about that. With a rustle, a few of his men broke off to go menace the village, while the king and the larger team would take the market. Slaves, goods. A few more times, and hamstrung by hunger and fear, the king of the Ife Ife wouldn't have a choice but to surrender. The king of the Ugbu crouched low. Pop out of nowhere, surprised the merchants. This was awesome. They never saw it coming. It just... Then, the king couldn't breathe. He looked down. An arrow stuck out of the leaves. It was in his chest, right in the middle. There was a rustling from the edge of the market. The men in leaves were being pushed at spear point, the ones that were supposed to go to the wider village. How? How had they been discovered? Then... The king saw her, Morami, his favorite wife. She stood not like he remembered her, cowed, beaten, and subservient, but as a queen, he would be impressed if he wasn't so terrified. You, he spat. She only smiled. He said, okay, they got him. What were they going to do? Kill the king? Did she know what that would do to them? The war would destroy both of their kingdoms. Especially now, as soon as his warriors back home caught wind of this, Morami said that they weren't going to catch wind of it. She had just spent months in his kingdom, learning where everyone and everything was. The Ife Ife attacked a city right after the king left it. It was done. The war was over. The king laughed. Lies. He didn't know what she had planned for him, but he wouldn't be her captive. Morami smiled. For a foolish, evil man, he was surprisingly correct. For instance, for one, when he said she was a queen, he was right about that. But she wasn't his queen. When he took her to the storehouse and she felt the leaf suits, she knew from that moment what she would do to him. He was right. He wouldn't be her captive. She struck the flint. The torch in her hand sputtered to life. She lowered it and caught the dry leaf suit. She waited a few minutes just to listen and then ordered the warriors who stopped the raid to do the same. Their screams joined their kings, and when they ended, the enemy's kingdom had fallen. Morami was victorious.
we'll see that, even though the enemies are gone, the story is not over. But that will, once again, be right after this. The king let it be known. Morami was their savior. She had not only stopped the attacks from the raiding forest spirits, but she had given them what they needed to overcome the Ugbu kingdom. They were safe now because of her. She came back to feasts and celebrations in her honor. Furthermore, they had found where the Ugbu had been keeping the people that they enslaved before they were able to sell them off. The merchant who brought the first warning came, his wife and children with him, and he thanked Queen Morami personally for her sacrifice and bravery. That evening, after the festivities, as they were lying in each other's arms, the king looked to his queen. Something was on Morami's mind. He could tell. She gave him a half-smile. He said, okay, they've been over this. Whatever happened, it didn't matter. She did what she had to do to survive. And she not only survived, but saved their kingdom. She said that it wasn't that. The celebrations, the honoring of her, it made her remember something. There was something that she still needed to do. The goddess of the river. After she told Morami that she needed to be captured by the forest spirits, she said that when Morami returned, the queen would need to bring a sacrifice. She was happy to enjoy these moments with her husband. Now, though, she needed to say goodbye to him. Him and their son. The king didn't understand goodbye. The river goddess kept her alive only to die. To save everyone, Morami corrected and rose. She said goodbye to her son, now a toddler, and made her way to the river. The promise had been made alone. The sacrifice will be given alone, too. She waded into the river, and the goddess rose to meet her. She bowed her head, thanking the goddess for saving her people. Now, she would give the goddess what she asked for, a sacrifice. The goddess said so it should be, as Morami lowered her head into the water, she heard the goddess ask for the flesh of her flesh, blood of her blood, her son, Oluragbu. Morami stopped. What? The river said yes. Flesh of her flesh, blood of her blood, her son. Olu no, yeah, I heard that, but what? The river said that sometimes we don't get to choose the sacrifices we have to make. All this time, Morami thought that she had been living on borrowed time, that the enemy would have overrun the village and killed her and her husband. She turned, begging the river goddess to change her mind, literally anything but her son. But it was like arguing with a river. The goddess sank back down. Queen Morami left weeping, as the story says. The king begged her not to do it and the people were awestruck. In the end, though, she did it. She took her child to the river and let him go. We don't know exactly why. Maybe because of what the river was going to do if she didn't. The river had used one woman to bring down an entire kingdom. How much easier to bring down theirs, and her son with it. 
or maybe it was because she made a promise. She swore an oath. But despite ending in tragedy, the story of Morami concludes with a spark of compassion. She and the king never had more children, but the people came together. They said they would be her children. Each and every one of them, and her story would be told for generations. And so, each year, the Ife Ife people honored the bravery and the sacrifice of Queen Morami. And that could be why you're hearing this story today. This was a tough one to wrap up. As much as I wanted to do an emotional ending, that would have been too much. With the child wondering why, and us having to see Morami's heart breaking as the child drowns. It's not rare that you see characters in these stories make sacrifices on behalf of legacy, but that's not what this was. This was purely, tragically utilitarian. She chose the lives of her entire city, of her people, over that of her son. She did not want to do it. I guess that's what makes it a sacrifice. I kind of like this portrayal of the gods, too. When it comes down to it, Morami was trying to argue with a river, a force of nature. There was no debate. And Morami knew that. The entire city was grieved by the goddess, but they all knew the cost of disobedience, and that Morami was the only person who could step up, make that choice, and save all their lives again. So, they did all they could for Marami. They held her up, honored her, and became her children for the rest of her life. Sometimes we don't get to choose what life takes, but we can choose how we treat each other. I want to tell you about a new podcast out by Cast Media. In 2014, two friends named Chris and Lisanne went for a hike in the Panamanian jungle. They got to the top of a mountain, started down an unmarked path, and were never seen alive again. A massive search turned up no trace of the missing women. But months later, their backpack was found deep in the jungle, with their phones and cameras still inside, and recovered images from their digital camera painted a terrifying picture of their final moments. What happened to Chris and Lisanne? Was it a hiking accident? Or something sinister? Join journalist Mariana Atencio and Jeremy Kreit as they travel to Panama eight years later to investigate the mysterious deaths of Chris Kremers and Lisanne Froome. Be sure to subscribe to Cast Media's new series, Lost in Panama, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. The creature this week is the Van Meter Visitor from Van Meter, Iowa, in the United States, a country in North America. Up until, like, 2012, the Van Meter Visitor was just a monster, it was named in 2012 by author Chad Lewis, but the story comes from local folktales and newspaper articles, one of which I posted on the website. The creature was like a pteranodon combined with a parrot combined with an anglerfish, and it's known for stinking so much that people pass out, maybe being Satan, and then getting shot so many times that no one has seen it in 100 plus years. It lives about 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, west of Des Moines, Iowa, just kidding, I, I know it's pronounced Des Moines. It started in 1903, 
when Dr. Alcott woke up to see an eight-foot-tall pteranodon outside his window with a glowing light on the top of its head horn thing. When the light hit him, he smelled a horrible, overpowering odor that made him feel faint. He didn't faint, though. What did he do? Well, he shot at it, of course. That will be a common solution for everyone in this segment who spots this creature. Next up, Peter Dunn was closing up at the bank. When he looked up to the telephone pole across the street, he saw this majestic creature of the late Cretaceous period. I only know that from watching Dinosaur Train with my son, by the way. Anyway, Peter saw this rare creature before him. And what did he do? That's right. Shotgun blast right through the bank window. Didn't even go outside. What's even stranger about this, though, is that another doctor, Dr. White, heard the commotion at the bank and allegedly saw the creature climb down from the pole like a parrot, then flap off with its leathery wings. Of course, he shot at it, too. Red Dead Redemption 2 takes place in 1899, and I, and I kind of thought that it was exaggerating the amount of guns in the North American West and Midwest because it's a video game. The story of this creature takes place only four years later, though, and the town in the pictures looks like Valentine, so maybe it was right on, I don't know. Anyway, the town got together and decided that pooling their guns was the best, and followed J.L. Platt Jr., another townsperson, when he said he heard the strange noises at a mine at the edge of town. But the problem? The monster wasn't alone. It had a baby, or a smaller friend. There weren't any experts on dinosaurs or mythological creatures present, but what were present, though, were a bunch of guys with guns. The stinky monsters flew out, decided that that was a terrible idea, and then retreated into the mine, where they were never heard from again. So yeah, this is basically the story of if Jurassic Park dinosaurs somehow got their claws on a time machine and started menacing the Old West. Which, on one hand, yeah, sounds ridiculous, but on the other, could be another billion dollar franchise. In which case, you heard it first here. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises, LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.